The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. And so this morning we're going to look, take a look and see all that God has taught us, and then we're going to land the plane, as it were, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. And so if you have your Bible, you can open it with me to Ephesians chapter 1, and just kind of follow along as we do this summary. And then, like I said, we will have two short points at the very end. As you're turning there, let's, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we come before you now, and Father, we confess that, that in and of ourselves we are nothing. We have nothing. We can, we can do nothing of spiritual good or effect. But we thank you for who we now are in Jesus Christ. This, our pardon, this we plead, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This, our righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so pray that you would enliven our hearts to your truth this morning, that, that as we look as a whole of, of, of all that you've taught us in the book of Ephesians, Father, I pray that you would, you would cause one or two or three things just to grip our hearts. And Lord, I pray that we would walk away from this place loving Jesus more than when we did entering into it. So we pray now, open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word, we pray. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen. Amen. So if you are there in Ephesians chapter 1, right, and if you can recall all the way back to January, you'll remember that we started our study by seeing what the blessed life is. Right, this world, you know, you have the hashtag, hashtag blessed, right? This world has a view and an idea of what the blessed life is. But here in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul shows us of what the blessed life is, that God's blessings are predominantly spiritual and not physical in nature. And Paul says in chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, that these spiritual blessings that we now have, they flow to us from the electing love of God. And so that from all the way from eternity past, this holy God has set his sights on you. Not not because you're good, not because of what you have done, but because Paul says because of his own purpose and grace. And so from that great and glorious truth and because he sent Jesus to redeem us by shedding his own blood on the cross, Paul says in Ephesians 1 that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God into his family. That we have been indwelt and sealed for heaven by the Holy Spirit. And that now our eyes have been opened to God's grand purposes in this world. And that is, Paul says, to unite all things one day in Jesus. Jesus is at the center of everything. And there's coming a day when all the world will bow their knees and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. That is coming. And that is God's grand purposes in everything that he does. And so Paul says because of these unspeakably great and rich truths that are ours in Christ, Paul prays, you'll see in Ephesians 1, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. That we would know the hope to which we have been called what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? When, and what is the immeasurable power of his greatness toward those who believe in him? Paul prays this for the Ephesians, and, and I pray this for you, church, because when our hearts truly begin 
to see these truths, not just as words on a, on a paper, but our very hope in life. When we begin to see these truths and when these truths take grip and take hold of our hearts, then we begin to praise God for his glorious grace, which Paul says in Ephesians 1, with which we have been blessed in the beloved. All right, so that's Ephesians chapter 1. You know, is that jog anybody's memory from uh, January and February? Uh, now we're going to continue on to Ephesians chapter 2. And so in Ephesians 2, we see this saving work of God in action for you and for me. Because in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul teaches us that contrary to the popular zeitgeist of today's culture, by nature, we're not good people who make a mistake here or there. We're not just people who need a little bit of help along the way. No, what, what does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1? That we are dead in our sins. And so left to our own selves, we're spiritually dead. We're hostile and in opposition to God as children of wrath. And so what Paul says, what we need in life is not moral reformation. Just clean up your own act, bud. No, what we need is spiritual resuscitation. We need new life. And so listen, this is exactly what God has done for us. You'll know in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, what does he say? The two greatest words in all the Bible. But God. This is who you are, church, without Christ. But God. He took the initiative. He acted. He pursued. And he has saved us. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Right? So you see from the very beginning, grace at work. You see now in your salvation, grace at work. And then Paul summarizes this gospel by saying in verses 8 through 9, by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast but you see here's the key god's work in our lives it didn't end the moment he saved us now look with me to the next verse ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 what does paul say for we are his workmanship and so for those of you who were here when i preached on this verse do do you remember the greek word that is translated as workmanship do you remember what what that reminds us of the, the Greek word there, it's called, it's poiema. Does, does that recall anything, another word to your mind, another English word to your mind? Poiema. It's the word from which we get poem. And so what, what is Paul saying here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? That despite the unspeakable beauty and majesty and splendor that is displayed throughout all of God's creation, Paul says that we, you and me, we are God's masterpiece not the beauty of a sunset or the vastness of the ocean or the grandeur of the mountains or the brilliance of the stars no you me we church we are god's masterpiece that he is painting in this world or or, or maybe to put it another way paul is saying in verse 10 you are the poetry that god is writing What Paul teaches in these 10 verses is this, that apart from Christ Jesus, what does Paul say? Apart from Jesus, we're objects of his wrath. But in Christ Jesus, we are subjects of his masterpiece. 
Apart from Christ, we have no hope in this world and God's judgment rests upon us. But if we are in Christ Jesus, if we are trusting in Jesus alone for salvation, we are subjects of his masterpiece. And so Paul continues on in Ephesians 2 to say that while God's salvation, it is personal. He saves individual sinners. However, the beautiful reality of the gospel is that now it has the power to dismantle any ethnic and racial barriers that once existed. Paul says in Ephesians 2, and it has now the power to unite all different kinds of people from every tribe, tongue, language, and people group in the world. In the gospel, not only have we been united to Jesus, but also through the gospel, we have been united to one another. In so doing, Paul says, Jesus, he is making a brand new kind of humanity, a kind of humanity who are now spiritually alive, who are citizens of God's kingdom, who are members of God's household, and who are now part of God's temple where his presence now dwells. And so Paul, he keeps going, right? He keeps going in Ephesians chapter 3 to remind the Ephesian church That no matter what your ethnicity or race is, no matter what your former works of religiosity is, whether good or non-existent, and no matter your pedigree or lineage, no matter your background, God's salvation has now come and has now been opened up for all peoples. And so if that is true, and and it is, in church just to apply that today, if it is also true that there are 3.4 billion people in our world today who have little to no access to the gospel, that they will be born, they will live, they will die, and they will spend an eternity in hell for their sins. If both of these are true, then listen, church, may Paul's ambition be our own ambition, that God's salvation is opened up for all peoples, but that there are people who have little to no access for the gospel. May Paul's ambition be our ambition. In Ephesians 3, verse 8, where he says that grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. And so he says this mystery, right, is that now all people, Jew and Gentile, like all people are now, can now become part of God's family through the gospel. And then, right, Paul continues in this glorious epistle. He continues to pray. Because he, he knows the tendency, right? He knows the tendency of every single one of you and me also. He knows that we are prone just to read these words on a page and not let our hearts be gripped by these truths. And so he prays, he prays that according to the riches of God's glory, he would grant you and me in the Ephesian church. He would grant us the ability to be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ would rest and dwell in our hearts through faith. That we being rooted and grounded and built up would have strength to comprehend with all the saints, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Jesus that surpasses knowledge so that we would be filled with all of God's fullness. And so, again, church, if you want to be filled with the fullness of God, then know the love of Jesus. The way we are filled with God's fullness is by knowing and resting in the love of Christ for you. This is what Paul prays. And so then he prays by, he ends his prayer by confessing the same desire. Every one of you and every, in myself as well, those who have been gripped by the love of Jesus forever changed. He prays this. Now to him 
who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And then he ends it by that, that emphatic, amen. All right, th- those are the first three chapters. Uh, how, how's the review going so far? Is it, is it going, going okay for you so far? Uh, we, we better speed it up a touch uh, as we make it through three more chapters, right? But, um, but Paul transitions in his letter in Ephesians 4. You'll remember that the, the structure of the book of Ephesians is such that the first three chapters are primarily gospel doctrine. This is what God has done for you in Jesus to set you free from your sins, to deliver you from your sins and to bring you, to restore you back to the presence of God. But then in chapters 4 through 6, Paul transitions to say, in light of the gospel, this is what is true of you. This is who you now are in Christ. And this is what you are now called to do as his son and as his daughter. So Paul begins Ephesians chapter 4 by urging the Ephesians and us today to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And to pursue humility and gentleness and love and unity within the body of Christ. Because now, church, because of Jesus, we are literally one body. And so to help lead his church, Christ has given to her apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, manifested in pastors today to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so this means that now pastors, they are to faithfully teach God's word so that way you wouldn't be tossed to and fro by, by every deceitful doctrine. But then secondly, Paul says, the work of a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry by helping Christians identify their spiritual gifts and then by mobilizing them to exercise their spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. And so just so you know, church, this is my desire for you. My desire is that every single one of you are flourishing and serving in your strengths and in your giftings. That there is a level of joy in Christ that cannot be known apart from serving in your spiritual gifts. And so that's my desire. That's my hope for next year that we, we get, ooh, hello, uh, that we get, Lord willing, I got to stop using my hands uh, that we Lord willing, get every one of you serving in some way within your spiritual giftings. That's to come. And so be praying to that and pray for yourself and pray for me. And so because of our newfound identity in Christ, Paul urges his audience not to go back. Right. Don't go back to your former way of living. The, the writer uh, Solomon would say to do that is like right like a like a dog that goes back to eat its vomit. Why would you do that? Why would you go back to your formal way of life when you've been rescued out of that and now into newness of life? No, we're called now as the people of this new humanity Jesus is creating. We're called to put off the old self, right? You remember the analogy? It's like taking off the old garments, put off the old self and to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And so Paul says, right, the way we demonstrate our new life in Jesus, primarily it's how we relate and how we speak to one another. Paul Paul says that we are to speak the truth. We're to reconcile quickly with one another. We're to live with honesty and integrity 
not wronging others. And we are to build one another up with our gracious and life-giving speech rather than tearing others down with our words. All right, we, we can't just stay in the lofty theological abstract. The, the, those theological truths must be played out in how we relate to one another. And, and Paul says we're to do this because our aim and our motive in life is to please and not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God who lives within us. So to that end, Paul says, put away all bitterness and anger and jealousy and slander toward other people. And instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And this is key, church. Why do we do that? Paul says we do this because God in Christ has forgiven you. We obey because in view of and as a result of the gospel. The gospel motivates, empowers, fuels us to obedience all right ephesians chapter five uh, how's the plane ride going so far is it going okay maybe a bit rocky but uh but we're still in the air right i hope uh but but ephesians five paul says the way we forgive others is one of the, the way we forgive others in life it's one of the ways that we live out and we fulfill the command paul says in ephesians chapter five verse one you'll note there look if you have your bible look there in ephesians chapter five verse one paul says this that we are to be imitators of god as beloved children. And so this command to imitate God by how we live, it sets the tone for nearly the rest of the book. Paul, Paul says we're to imitate God in our speech and in our behavior. We're, we're to walk as children of the light and to do what is pleasing to the Lord, taking no part whatsoever in the unfruitful works of darkness. But instead, we're, Paul says we're to expose them by how we live as lights in the world. And so that's why Paul says we are to walk in wisdom. We are to redeem the time. We are to know and to do the will of God for our lives. And we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, you know, up to this point, Paul, he's showing us what it means to live out the gospel. Just kind of generally speaking in, in principles, right? Let your way of life be as such. But in chapter 5, verses 22, for the next good bit of verses, I don't have them exact, but for the next good bit of verses, he begins to share how the gospel is to affect three specific aspects of our lives. How the gospel should affect our marriages, how the gospel should affect our parenting, and how the gospel should affect our work. First, Paul says that our marriages are to be a reflecting picture of the gospel. That our marriages are to imitate Jesus's relationship with his bride, the church. So Paul says, wives, to that end, you are therefore to, you are therefore called to honor, respect, and submit to your to the loving leadership of your husbands, just as the church honors, respects, and to submit and submits to his to Christ's leadership over the church. But then Paul spends the bulk of the time not not talking to the ladies, but but hammering on the men, right? Because he knows we're stubborn headed, right? And so he speaks to the men in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. And he says this, men, you are to daily lay down your life for your bride, just as Christ has done for you. And so while the temptation for every husband ever since the Garden of Eden, is Adam was tempted with this. And every, ever since that day, every husband since has been tempted either to, to lead his family in passivity or to lead his family tyrannically. 
But Paul, he instead admonishes and encourages and commands us not to either of those, but to pursue our wives, to prioritize our wives, and to love our wives sacrificially. And so married men in the room, quick checkup and question. How, how are you doing in daily communicating to your wife, both in word and in deed, that your relationship with her is your highest priority in life, that it is higher than any other human relationship in, this, in your life? Right? Because there's only one relationship that displays the mystery of the gospel, Paul says, and that is your marriage. So husband and wives, you're called to be imitators of God and to reflect the gospel in your marriage. But Paul continues on in Ephesians 6. He says we're also to reflect the gospel and to imitate God in our parenting as we patiently bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And as we parent, we are to remember and to reflect God's own fatherhood over us. That's the key. We parent in light of how God has been a good father to us. And we are to reflect his paternal love and care to our children. And so then Paul ends this section of imitating God by saying that we are to imitate him and to reflect the gospel in how we work. We're to remember that from the very beginning, God created work. That work is a good thing. And that though sin has now cursed our work because of the fall, now, because of the gospel, Christ is able to redeem our work. Which means at least two things. First, that all work is good work if done to the glory of God, right? All work is good work if done to the glory of God. Whether you're a janitor at a Fortune 500 company or the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, does not matter in God's sight. All work is good work if done to the glory of God. And then secondly, this means how we reflect the gospel in our work. That as Christians, we should have the reputation of a strong work ethic. Because when we work, Paul says, we're doing so as to the Lord and not to man. We we don't ultimately, as Christians, work for a boss. We don't work for a paycheck, ultimately. We don't work for a company. No, when we work, we are working for the Lord. And so then Paul ends the body of his letter, right? We, we just studied this a few weeks ago by reminding the Ephesian church of the spiritual battle currently waging on around them and against them. And so what does Paul say in light of that truth? Church, as a result of that, put on the whole armor of God. Put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, and the sword of the spirit. Arm yourself, get ready for battle so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil and so that you may be able to proclaim the gospel to others. And so that's why Paul prays at the very end in Ephesians 6 verses 19 through 20 that words would be given to him and opening his mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel because we're in a war and we need spiritual warfare to fight this battle against the enemy. All right, we are now in our descent. We're now in our descent. If, if you can hear, the landing gear is being engaged. And so we are going to end our time by reading and by looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. And I have two very brief, two very brief observations. Paul says this in Ephesians six twenty-one through 24. So that you also may know how I am. And what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. 
I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you, or grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And so just a couple observations. The first one is, it is God's word that encourages our hearts. There was evidently a deep affectionate care and concern between Paul and the Ephesian church. So much so that Tychicus' purpose for going to Ephesus was to share with them how Paul was doing and to encourage them with the truths contained in this letter. And so maybe as you're reading, as you as you reread the book of Ephesians, just remember, church, this isn't some ivory tower theologian writing to a distant audience. No, Acts 19, it shows us and it reminds us that Paul was the founder. He was the spiritual father for the Ephesian church. And so as their spiritual father, in effect, what he's saying is this. The greatest way that I can think of to encourage you, Ephesians, is to remind you of the gospel. To remind you of who you now are in Christ and to challenge and to command you to live light in light of your calling. Right? The greatest way Paul could think of to it, encourage his spiritual children in the faith was writing this letter. And so, yes, we need the fellowship of one another in life. We need each other to walk alongside this fight of faith. But even more than that, we need to experience the fellowship and the communion of our Heavenly Father. And so, listen. We need both, but it is in God's word where we find the greatest encouragement because it is, it is through God's word and through prayer that we fellowship with God. God's word, it encourages our hearts. And then secondly, church, God's grace carries us to the end. God's grace carries us to the very end. If you remember, go back, you can flip back to Ephesians chapter one, how, how Paul begins this letter What does he begin it by saying? He says, grace to you. And then here we see at the very end, the way Paul ends his letter by saying, grace be with you. In other words, we receive God's grace as we read and study the truth of God's word, hence the grace to you. But now Paul says, you are to carry God's truth with you now in such a way that it fulfills its intended effect in your life. And that is God's grace to be with you every single day. And so just as the letter begins, just as it is filled with God's grace and just as it ends with his grace, so it is for our own lives as well. Church, never forget this truth. We are covered by God's grace and we are carried by his grace to the very end. From beginning to end, our story is a story of grace. And so your story of salvation, it didn't begin the moment you asked God to save you. Now, your story of grace was written with the ink of God's electing love, as Paul says, from before the foundation of the world. God, he is the author of your faith. He is the accomplisher of your faith. He is the sustainer of your faith, and he is the perfecter of your faith. At the bottom of it all is the God of our salvation. So that means that our lives then are but a stained glass, a mosaic with each individual piece telling the story of and pointing to the God of all grace. We are covered by his grace and we are carried by his grace from, be- from beginning to end. 
Last observation. Notice, though, in verse 24 how Paul qualifies it. He, he says, grace be with, and he inserts this qualifier, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. And that, that word incorruptible, it, it could also be translated as love immortal. It, it conveys this idea of something that will never perish. It will never end. And, and so if the object, if the center, if the focus of our Lord, the Lord Jesus, of our love, the Lord Jesus Christ, if he is immortal and infinite, then our love for him should never end, church. Listen, in heaven, I, I think about this a lot. And, and, and I think it would do you good too. I would encourage you maybe to think about this a lot too. But in heaven, there will never come a day when we will have reached the limits of our capacity for loving Christ. Now, this is the glory of heaven. That every single day we're there. We'll, we'll get to see our family, our friends, like that. That's going to be wonderful. But the glory of heaven is this. That every single day we will reach a new and higher degree of beholding the glory of of Christ, which means that for all eternity, our love for him will grow deeper and deeper every single day. And so until that day, church, while we still live on this earth, let us daily seek to grow in knowing our Savior and grow in beholding his glory in his word. And in turn, may we daily grow in our love for him, a love, Paul says, that is incorruptible. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.